Hello! On Farmgate today, I'm talking to Sam Hall, the director of the Conservative Environment Network, also known as SEN. With nearly 60 MPs making up its parliamentary caucus, SEN is arguably the most important and influential network of environmentally motivated Conservative activists and politicians in the United Kingdom. Its previous director is now an environmental advisor to the Prime Minister Boris Johnson, while Sam Hall has moved in the opposite direction, having worked as a special advisor to the previous DEFRA secretary, Michael Gove. This interview was recorded in mid-January, and the UK's imminent departure from the European Union on the 31st of January was firmly on our minds. I started by asking Sam Hall, in terms of food production and agricultural land use, what are the big opportunities arising from Brexit? But the biggest opportunity, as I see it, is the fact that we're leaving the common agricultural policy. Um, I think the cap has been bad for our farming sector and I think it's stifled some productivity improvements. Um, but I, I think, crucially, it's been really bad for our environment. Um, the fact that we've had to pay out the £3 billion a year, predominantly for farmers simply keeping land in agricultural condition, rather than for particular environmental benefits, I think is a huge missed opportunity. Um, but but we've I, had I the stewardship to... scheme. We've had the stewardship schemes coming out of the cap. Do, do you not think they've been as successful as they might have been? Uh, no, I, I, I don't think they have been particularly successful. I don't think uptake has been particularly impressive and, and the outcome of the limit hasn't been haven't been as good as they could do. And I think, you know, the, the, the fact remains that pillar one of CAP uh, is the, the by far the largest component um, of the funding. And I think after after Brexit, I, I look forward to seeing environmental enhancement being the primary thing that we support through our, our future farming and land use policy. So you see um, within the Agriculture Bill going forward under uh, a new Secretary of State, uh, Theresa Villiers, as opposed to Michael Gove, who wrote the Agriculture Bill, um, obviously with his civil service, um, you think that the environment will still be the, the critical core um, of that bill going forwards? I think so, yes. I mean, that is that is the government's um, stated policy that although we're going to support um, a range of public goods through the agriculture bill, the environment was sort of the preeminent public good, I think was the phrase that, that Michael Gove used. And I think, you know, what the government is proposing to do through the environment bill as well, which sort of sits alongside the agriculture bill, is to set a range of new environmental targets um, on things like water quality, biodiversity restoration. And I don't think you could deliver those targets without significant levels of funding into into encouraging farmers to farm in a more sustainable way and to, and to uh, improve land use and make it more sustainable. One of the conversations that we had around the time of the agriculture bill was looking at the particular definitions of the individual public goods. And one of the concerns that I had at the time, and I think, and I think a concern that you shared, um, was that um, it it shouldn't be possible for farmers to concentrate on one public good over and above another, um, potentially distorting progress, that, that um, action on climate change and action on biodiversity should be coupled. Is, is, is that um, a fair summary of, of your own view? And do you think that's something that will be followed through? I think I think there is a risk that you could um, you know, solve for one of those public goods and not for another. Um, I think the way that DEFRA is thinking about you know, the environmental land management scheme, particularly with its vision for these whole farm plans where you look across the entire land holding um, and you think about what measures you want to um, deploy across them and, and the, the 
the total environmental benefits you get from that. Hopefully, that will encourage farmers to look at uh, look at look at the, the scheme in a holistic way, so that they're not that they're they're trying to solve multiple and deliver multiple public benefits rather than just one. I think the way that you design the you know the payment scheme as well that you know give an additional financial reward for particular interventions that deliver multiple benefits um, and smaller ones for the one for the interventions that just deliver a single benefit. You know, I think the ways that you can design the scheme hopefully to mitigate that concern. But I mean, I, I totally agree with the the premise, which is that you know we do have these twin crises on biodiversity and climate, and you know there are a range of solutions that can help us tackle both simultaneously, and, and those those should be our priority. So we talked about the common agricultural policy there as being a sort of key opportunity um, as we as we leave the European Union. Do you think that there are there are other opportunities? Um, I, I don't know, perhaps around trade or um, other. Uh, other schemes that we could introduce to uh, improve environmental delivery um, that, that we'll be able to do as a result of leaving? I, I mean, I think there are opportunities around trade. Um, I know that, you know, there are there are many in the environmental movement that see, you know, a lot of threat from the, the trade agenda and the fact that we might be pushed by some of our new trade partners to lower our standards um, as a result of signing free trade agreements. You know, I think the government commitments are not... Um, lowering standards for by signing free trade agreements are quite strong um, and I think the public support and that the support in Parliament for, for maintaining those standards is also very strong and I so I'm not I'm not particularly worried about that threat but I do think there are you know more positively I think we should also be thinking about the opportunities so one opportunity as I see it is uh, the chance to use trade policy to reduce our, our global environmental footprint so the the food that we consume I think obviously does have environmental impacts in other parts of the world and I think that by controlling our own trade policy we have more levers to pull in terms of tackling that environmental footprint um, and i also think you know the british uh, agriculture is you know has some of the highest environmental animal welfare standards in the world and i think we've got a great british food brand and i hope that uh, with a free trade with a, with a future free trade policy we, we can do more to export some of that great food around the world there's an interesting balance there isn't there because uh, i mean i i would entirely agree with you that there is there is a brand associated with britain which is uh, you know that we are good on environmental standards we're good on animal welfare uh, i think to an extent other countries may be starting to overtake us so we, we you know we always need to improve that brand um, but at the same time i mean you raise the issue of trade agreements and and, and as we leave the EU, we've got a fairly tight time frame to do that. Um, there is going to be a lot of, um, of pressure on senior politicians and on the Prime Minister himself to, to try and bag big trade deals with um, countries like the United States of America and, and Obviously, that sort of that—that's really the crux of where environmental groups are concerned that um, standards could be lowered. Um, you, you say that you're confident that that won't happen. What gives you that confidence? Um, so, my confidence, I think, comes from um, when the first instance um, commitments in the Conservative Party's manifesto at the last election, where they committed to. Um, putting into legislation a, a guarantee, a sort of non, so-called non-regression guarantee that, that we won't lower our standards below their, their current levels. Um, so I, I think that's very strong. And I think, you know, the Prime Minister and uh, the Environment Secretary, Theresa Villiers, herself sort of reiterated those commitments on a number of occasions. Um, and I think, you know, that, that those are now very hard to go back from. And I think underpinning those commitments is very strong public support and parliamentary support. You know, I think this issue around standards, it's something that can unite 
you know, traditional farming groups like the NFU and environmental groups. I think the, the coalition of support is, is very strong. And I think, you know, provided that that is maintained that, that front, then I think politically it would be incredibly difficult for the government um, to, to water down those standards. And I mean, yes, this is obviously a top um, ask of the US trade negotiators um, to, to get greater access to the UK food market for some of their food products. Um, but, you know, like in a negotiation, I think, you know, you have countries have to set out their red lines, the things that they are just not going to agree to. And in the same way that in another policy over on the NHS, I think that this is just one of the things the government is going to have to be clear with. It's, it's not on the table. So following on from that, of course, the, the role of the Conservative Environment Network is, uh, is, is pretty crucial. I mean, you it, arguably you are the first and foremost environmental organisation for um, politically active conservatives. So, so do you see that you... Um, as director and Sen as an order, as an as an entity um, have a really strong and critical role to play in making sure that these environmental standards are upheld. I think the Conservative Environment Network definitely does have a, have a big role in this 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 parliament. Um, so probably our, our our main sort of area of activity is is our parliamentary caucus. So we've got um, nearly sixty backbench Conservative MPs now in our in our uh, in our caucus, all of whom sign up to. You know, a range of environmental principles, um, uh, you know, for instance, around tackling climate change and protecting wildlife and improving air quality. Um, and, you know, we work with them, we support them, we give them uh, the tools that they need to be able to raise some of these important environmental issues in Parliament. And we also act as a, as a platform as well. So we help to convene and bring together, um, you know, not just MPs, but also councillors, other people from the wider Conservative uh, movement and indeed from the environmental movement so that we can have, uh, you know, the key policy debates um, and, and so that we can we can push ahead on some of these key issues, including including the trade standards piece that, that we've just been talking about. And I think actually, in, in to some extent, you're being quite humble there in terms of uh, in terms of that caucus, because although you talk about um, those MPs as being backbench MPs, previous um, supporters of the Conservative Environment Network have included Michael Goh, have included Theresa Villiers uh, and Rebecca Powell, um, uh, Zach Goldsmith. So so people who are now really pretty critical and instrumental in government. Um, so so that would seem that, you know, Sen has the potential to be immensely influential um do, do you see things that way do you see sen as a as a as a, a really influential body uh <laughs> yeah i mean you would expect me to say yes and uh yes i mean I, I think we do have a lot of impact um you know from helping to you know coordinate conservatives in parliament um, in support of the net zero target was one of our most recent um, successes we were pushed very hard on issues like legally binding targets and the environment bill which we're very pleased to see and yeah as you say i think another key measure of our influence is how um people mps who've been in our backbench caucus then go on into governments and you know champion the same values that we've championed at sen but in, inside government um, you know, I mean, my, my predecessor as director of SEN is now um, the Prime Minister's environment advisor. Um, uh, and you've already mentioned Zach Goldsmith, Simon Clark is another backbench caucus MP, Rebecca Powell, all of whom now in very um, sort of key positions in government. So, so yes, I mean, as, as a network, we look to sort of bring on the next generation of 
of green conservative decision makers in government, and you know that's definitely one of our one of our aims at SEM. I think I think it's 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 worked quite well in, in recent years. So, so you very kindly agreed with my flattery there that that uh, that SEN is influential, <laughs> um, and and those are some great examples. Uh, you know, sort of looking back um, to an extent, how how you know going forwards, how do you how do you measure uh, the success of SEN? How how will you know at the end of the year or the end of uh, end of the next couple of years that SEN has been successful? Um, so I've, I mean, I've, there are th- three things in particular that we're really focused on this year, um, and I suppose you know ultimately we should measure our success by how much progress we've made on those three different goals. So one is on net zero. So we were delighted that the government enshrined in all the net zero targets. I think this year, particularly in the run-up to the UN Climate Summit, COP26 in Glasgow, it's vital that we make more progress on the short-term, the near-term policy delivery. So whether that's better incentive for electric vehicles, um, you know, a farm emissions reduction plan, um, you know, delivering on the tree planting commitments, you know, really key that we get we get the policy policies specific policies in place to be able to deliver on net zero. Secondly, is around the the sort of big post Brexit DAFRA bill for agriculture, environment, and fisheries. I'm pretty happy, certainly with the you know the agriculture bill um, and lots of components of the environment and fisheries bill. But if we can strengthen those further as they go through Parliament, make sure we preserve the bits that are great on the environment, um, then I think that's that, that's another key goal. And then thirdly, is around the sort of international agenda, um, where I think there's, there's some of the trade issues that we've talked about, making sure that we not only mitigate those risks that we might lower our standards, but also hopefully take advantage of the um, of some of the opportunities for the environment through an independent trade policy. And then using the UK's sort of great success stories on things like phasing out coal to make a really successful COP26 in Glasgow, and so that we can encourage other countries um, to to do more on tackling climate change. So those are the three kind of big, big priorities for us. And, you know, I hope to see lots of MPs um, from our caucus raising those issues in Parliament and and championing and leading campaigns. Um, And, you know, I will judge our success by to what extent we've made progress on each of them. Fantastic. And, and 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 from there, I kind of want to take us back almost to the first question that I asked, which was about Brexit. We looked at the opportunities, um, but I wonder, you know, we, we've discussed trade uh, policy, you know, and the potential pitfalls there. But I wonder if there are other specific risks that you see in relation to the environment or agricultural land use that you think that we need to be aware of, that, that we outside, um, you know, in the in the uh, in the NGO and, and think tank community need to be aware of as, as much as you, you know, within in the party itself? I, I genuinely don't really see um, huge areas for concern. So, uh, and, you know, another area that you hear a lot from NGOs is, um, you know, what if we weaken some of our environmental protections, um, you know, without the EU being there essentially to force national governments that maybe aren't quite as committed to the environmental agenda, you know, a government might come in in the future and, and lower lower some environmental standards or lower some protections or just not make very much progress on some of the key issues like climate or biodiversity. I don't really see that as being, um, I don't see that as being a huge threat. Um, and I think, you know, I'm particularly reassured with um, by the environment bill, the fact that the, the government is committing to setting these new legally binding environmental targets that will, you know, require the government to make progress over the next 15 years um, on a whole suite of different environmental issues. And I think provided that, you know, those targets are set and they're ambitious, 
um, and we've got a strong office for environmental protection to um, hold the government to account on its progress towards meeting those targets. You know, I think that will, for me, I think that will ensure that that we will continue to to drive forward. And I think, you know, the political environment that we're in at the moment, I think support for um, you know, environmental environmentalism, I think, has is, is never been stronger. And I think ultimately governments respond above all to that public and civil society pressure um, and provided that NGOs and others sort of keep making that case, keep building that coalition of, of board support, um, you know, that I think the risk of government backsliding on some of its commitments is very small. Well, let's come back to the environmental movement itself um, a, a little bit later. I'm, I'm, I'm interested, you know, you talked about your predecessor um, uh, as, as director of SEN having sort of moved into a position as environmental uh, advisor for the prime minister. And you've kind of come the other way because you were an advisor to Michael Gove uh, for, for a couple of years. Um, and, and of course, Michael Gove Although I think it would be fair to say there was um, a measure of disquiet when he was first appointed, by the time he left, he had been seen as a, an enormous breath of fresh air, almost a hurricane of fresh air, um, you know, going <laughs> through that department. Um, and, uh, and now Theresa Villiers has come in and, and you were advisor for her for, for a shorter time, but still. Uh, and I wonder if you could um, if you could tell me a little bit about them, actually, a bit about how um, how you were working with them, how you found them as people, how you found them as policymakers, uh, is their approach um, particularly different? I think there's, you know, there's potentially a big legacy there of Michael Gove's to deliver. Will Theresa Villiers deliver it or make a legacy of her own? So, I mean, there's a whole basket of questions there. So, so go where you want. So I, I suppose to sort of say a little bit first about the personalities um, and, and to ca- have a caveat up front, which is that I didn't work particularly uh, for a long time with Theresa Villiers and didn't, didn't get to see a lot of her style. So I probably can't really comment so much on her, but certainly in terms of Michael Gove, you know, I thought he was, um, you know, an incredibly, uh, bold politician. Um, he, you know, when he first came into DEFRA, I think took some time to think about the issues, to um, listen to experts, to um, gather evidence, and to really think about what his strategy was. Um, you know, as one of his policy advisors, you know, he was always very receptive to interesting ideas, and would always give them consideration, would always show kind of real engagement, I think, in, in some of the substance of the issues. Um, and then once, you know, once he sort of figured out what it was he wanted to do, he was very kind of effective and persistent at driving that vision through the department and indeed through government. And, you know, he would he would think very strategically about how to um, how to get some of the policies that he wanted to see um, enacted. In and, and he was also very public, wasn't he? He was he was out there, um, you know, promoting what he was doing, um, showing people that he was that he was thinking that he was engaging. And, and I think, you know, Theresa Villiers comes across as being much more. Um, reticent in terms of uh, that media profile. I think I think I think there's something in that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think what I would say about Theresa Villiers is, you know, she came she came into government only a short while ago, and she immediately had um, a lot of work um, to do, kind of behind the scenes. So that was, you know, making sure that um, Defra was fully prepared for a No Deal outcome to Brexit, which was, you know, still a strong possibility at the time. 
Um, you know, and that, that involves, you know, DEFRA is one of the most, if not the most affected department by Brexit in Whitehall. Um, and so there's a lot of, lots of painstaking work going into making sure the department was ready. And similarly on the environment bill where, you know, a lot of the policy developments, you know, the consultations, the public aspects of developing the policy for the environment bill had been done. It was a question of deciding which bits to sort of finally push for um, when when the bill before the bill was sort of formally introduced. So I think you know there's a lot of lot of immediate work um, on that which didn't really have very public facing elements. Um, but you know I certainly see that you know she you know the vision and the the different elements of the Michael Gove reform agenda at DEFRA are being delivered by Theresa Villiers. Uh, you know and I think she's done a, a fantastic job of getting lots of the really difficult things that were really controversial inside government actually into the environment bill. Um, you know, and I, I think what sort know, of things were those? Um, well, I, I think you know the one that I think she deserves huge credit for is is the legally binding targets. Um, um, so legally binding, so the, the, the environmental creates a framework um, for setting legally binding targets for different bits of um, the environment, whether it's water quality, biodiversity, um, resource use. Um, and, you know, the, the idea of that is that it creates this long term direction of travel that businesses know where we're going. And they can plan, they can invest with confidence that this is the direction of government policy. But the, I mean, the, the principle of the target setting framework very, draws very heavily on the on the framework in the Climate Change Act. Um, but you know, that was that is a sort that's the sort of thing that is very difficult to get through government. Governments don't like legal risk. Um, you know, we've seen in air quality where the government has um, been taken to court over the nitrogen dioxide limit values. Um, and has had to um, put up a lot of money to help um, tackle that problem. So, you know, there are bits of government that don't like various of the corollaries of legally binding targets. So, you know, I think she deserves huge credit for, um, uh, you know, and, and other ministers um, for helping to get that get that through and get that in, approved as government policy. That's very interesting. And, and I think actually from a sustainability perspective, it's almost as if there's been a perfect storm in terms of ministers because we've had Michael Gove come through where animal welfare was something that he was interested in, but really the environment seemed to be his passion. And I think um, with Theresa Villiers, animal welfare is something that she's campaigned on a lot through her um, political life. So there's that that sort of combination where um, you, you, the impact that animal welfare has in terms of outcome measures on uh, measuring and demonstrating environmental progress. There's a, there's a nice coupling of those two issues uh, potentially going forward as well. I'd like to move on to uh, a slightly different topic. Until recently, Recently, climate change was seen as being a very divisive issue for UK Conservatives. Um, if you look at the Labour Party or the Liberal Democrats, um, although you had um, voices of denial within those parties, there was a broad consensus that climate change was, um, was, was something that was caused by humans and it was a threat that needed consideration. Um, uh, that's changed, I, I think, really quite considerably in the UK. We've gone from a position where um, we heard quite a lot of voices uh, for climate denial um, within the Conservative Party perhaps three or four years ago to a point now where you're speaking with one voice. There is nobody in the mainstream media from the Conservative Party that isn't recognising that there is a climate emergency. So it's not only that the attitude has changed, but the language has, has ramped up significantly. And that's really still very different from the United States and from uh, from Australia, where, you know, currently we're, they're still going through these enormous bushfires. 
So what's changed? What, why is the UK um, Conservative Party different? Why and how has that change happened? So I think, firstly, I mean, I, I agree with your the premise that there has been a, a, a sea change, um, particularly in terms of how openly and proactively government speaks about the climate change issue. But I would say that there has, you know, going back to Margaret Thatcher, been consistent support from I was what I'd say is sort of the mainstream of the Conservative Party in the UK, from the leadership of the Conservative Party in the UK for tackling climate change. So Margaret Thatcher was the first, you know, major world leader to talk about climate change at the UN in 1989. David Cameron made climate action a fundamental part of his modernization agenda. Um, so I, I think this has been has been a theme for many Conservative leaders. Um, I think in terms of what has really changed in the last couple of years that has really, you know, ramped up the uh, the, the prioritisation of climate as an issue. Um, you know, firstly, I think I'd look to the 2017 general election, where um, after that, you know, there was a lot of commentary about how the Conservative Party was struggling to appeal to younger voters. And polling evidence consistently showed that environment, climate change, was a key issue for those younger voters, for appealing to those younger voters. And I think, you know, the, it's sort of the, this, this need to win over younger voters is an existential um, problem for the Conservatives. And I think that is one of the one of the reasons why, um, why, why you've seen climate change go up the order of priorities. I also think public concern uh, more widely than just younger people has started to really crystallise um, on climate change. Um, you know, TV programmes like Blue Planet, um, as well as lots of you know major high profiles and events like the um, like the wildfires in the Amazon last year, um, you know I think these things have really helped to raise climate change up the up the public consciousness, and I think just people are more concerned now, and politicians are responding to it. Um, you know, the last election, many of the MPs that we work with, you know, were talking to us about conversations they've had on the doorstep about climate change, about environment hustings that they've had. You know, it is just a big issue and MPs notice that their, their constituents are concerned about it. But but at the um, same time, um, I mean, you know, there, there have been school strikes around the world. Extinction, Extinction Rebellion exists around the world. Um, and yet it's in the UK that the Conservative Party has changed. And I, and I, and I you know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking back to um, my own memory over the course of the last few years. And there were, you know, people and organisations who were working quite actively, I think, within the Conservative Party to try and reframe the debate away from the impact on polar bears to perhaps the impact on uh, on agriculture, the impact on, um, on flooding in people's uh, own constituencies. And it seems to me that that's, that's part of it. But also there have been big personalities that have taken this on in the UK, from the goldsmiths, who, of course, are, you know, key movers and shakers within the Conservative Environment Network, but then Michael Gove himself, who seemed almost single-handedly at that stage to to take the climate change flag and wave it, um, wave it, you know, really, uh, really rapidly um, across the faces of the uh, of the Conservative Party in this country and create that change. Yes, I, I, I agree that actually, you know, the role of particular ministers, I think, um, you know, should not be understated. I think, you know, Michael Gove, I think, sort of spotted some of those 
trends around you know the younger voters and the need to appeal to them the, the rising public concern particularly about plastic and was able to i suppose seize that political moment to um advance the agenda of his department i defra but, but that um, wasn't just I, a cynical move was it it wasn't just about voters no it, it definitely wasn't a cynical move um you know i having worked for him i can firmly vouch for the fact that he is deeply committed to environmentalism but i think what you know why, why i think that is important is because you know DAFRA for a very long time environment within conservative politics had not been a top priority issue and i think he was able to use that that, that political context um to advance his department's agenda i um, mean you know, i think it was more it was a sort of political tactics i think if you like that and it, it created a political opportunity for him which he seized so so traditionally it it's said that people become um a little more conservative as they as they get older do you think that today's extinction rebellion protesters the school strikers will be voting conservative in the future <laughs> uh i'd like to think so i mean i think you know we do have the strongest records um, on decarbonisation in the past 10 years of any G- G20 nation. We've made huge progress on, particularly on, on, on expanding renewable energy and, and phasing out coal. Um, you know, and I hope that this parliament, with the various commitments that were made in the manifesto, the the legacy, the opportunity to revitalise um, uh, farm payments, as we've already talked about at the start of the podcast, you know, we'll, we'll demonstrate, you know, once and for all that, you know, the Conservative Party does have a really good record on the environment and has made huge amounts of progress. Um, you know, I do think that, um, you know, I sense there's a bit of irony in your question. And I think, you know, there obviously is, uh, I think, a lot of overlap between Extinction Rebellion, some of the school strikes and, um, you know, people that want to um, fundamentally change our economic model away from capitalism. You know, and I think that those those sort of quite left wing economic views, I think, are quite embedded in some of those in some of those organisations. But I think if you were just looking at the you know the environmental record, you know, I, I do I hope by the end of this parliament, you know, the Conservatives will have a have something strong to pointing. I can remember talking to Michael Jacobs, who was uh, a key advisor to Tony Blair on the environment um, at around the time of the Climate Change Act, and I can remember sort of saying to him, "Look, yeah, because at the time it wasn't. It, it's not just that NGOs." don't praise the Conservative Party. I think they don't praise, praise any party that's actually physically in government very often. And I said, you know, how, how frustrating is it that, you know, you're doing the work that you're doing at that time on the Climate Change Act um, and you're not getting uh, the plaudits for, for doing that work? And, and of course, you know, he, he said he, it was immensely frustrating. And, the, and, and, and so I'm interested, you know, from, from your perspective, you're, you've talked throughout this podcast about the progress that, um, that the UK has made under the Conservative government government since 2010. Um, and, you know, and there's a lot of progress and clearly, um, you know, the net zero target first in the world to have that, that is really big record levels of investment in renewables, as you're talking about the, uh, you know, the phasing out of coal, this is all there. And yet, we don't hear that uh, being chanted by Extinction Rebellion, we don't hear um, uh, environmental organisations praising the progress that's being made, um, uh, you know, in their press releases in, in the media. How frustrating is that? <laughs> I mean, it, it is frustrating. I mean, to, on, on one level, I do understand why. I think, you know, with the, the, the scale of the problems that we face on the environment are vast and there is obviously lots, lots more to do. Um, and, you know, the government can't afford to be complacent about, about what it has to do ahead of it. Um, but equally, I do think, you know, when a good announcement is made, I do think it is important to 
to pause and to, to to give some positive reinforcement for that because you know there will be with any big sort of big policy that really has an impact there will be a debate within within government on that there will be people that will oppose doing that and if if the ministers who are championing that climate policy don't can't point to next time round that actually there's a, a positive uh, political gain from the government choosing to back a particular climate policy then it, it's harder to make that case in government next time um so, so, so I think it's all it's all about that positive reinforcement. It's all about giving you know allies in government. I think um, evidence that actually you know it is worthwhile politically doing some of these. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I think measures that we need. If, if you were talking to uh, you know a lot of people, especially uh, you know parents of young children, um, if if my child comes home from school and sticks their coat up on the coat pegs, I mean a it's a miracle. But b if I then tell that child off for not also hanging up their scarf. Um, um, then that, that's really not going to encourage them to, to do it again in the future. Whereas if I praise them, then they're much more likely to want to hang up the scarf as well. So they get additional praise. And people kind of seem to forget that, that governments are, are made up of people uh, as well. And you touched earlier a little bit on Extinction Rebellion and some of those sort of political um, uh, dynamics that are working within there. But why is it that you think it is so difficult for Extinction Rebellion or, um, or environmental groups in general um, to applaud the progress. Yes, we know there is an emergency. We know that we need to do much more as a nation, that the Conservatives need to do much more as a government, but progress is being made. Um, and surely it's better to reward before you then urge with the stick, carrot and stick. I think it's hard because, you know, Extinction Rebellion in particular have this, you know, incredibly radical demand, which is that we need to reach net zero by 2025, which is five years away. And I think, you know, whatever action the government takes, clearly it's never going to be enough to, to get to get us on track to that sort of target. It's just not it's just not feasible, it's just not deliverable. So I think, you know, they've, they've created such a high um, bar to clear that I don't think any government is going to be able to clear that bar. So I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, the, the scale of the action they they are demanding that would meet their demands is so is is just unfeasible. And and do you think that the government has done enough to um to 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 reject um formally that um that that policy um demand to make the case that um that net zero is is achievable um that it is it's achievable within the timeframes that have been recognised as uh, as being compatible with um, maintaining um you know climate warming within the two degrees do you think the government's been robust enough in making that case back to extinction rebellion um, and to the public more widely um i think i think the government has certainly tried to make that case and obviously the the target date that the government did eventually go for 2015 was based on independent advice from the committee on climate change um and you know underpinned by science and economic modeling and evidence and i think uh, you know, that, that should have been a way of, of hopefully depoliticising the target date as an issue. Um, I think, unfortunately, you know, the election, you know, the parties all proposed a range of different uh, target dates. Greens went for 2030. Labour didn't actually specify a date, but they said they wanted to do as much as possible by 2030, um, live down to 2045. And I think as a result, you know, particularly academics um, and some NGOs, I think, were sort of reluctant to... Um, kind of intervene in that debate for fear of sort of proving or you know, uh, favoritism to a particular party. But I do think that now now we've had the election, you know, the target date isn't going to change anytime soon. I do think we need to, you know, come back behind that, um, you know, trust 
as it was set up to do when we passed the Climate Change Act, trust the advice of the Committee on Climate Change um, and focus instead on some of the near, nearer term practical measures that we need to start implementing. Um, you know, and I, I think, you know, that will be the government's focus is to pivot back onto that um, focus on short term actions that we can take now um, and to try and get away from this endless debate about target dates, which I think, you know, ultimately doesn't really move us forward. It's very interesting. I think that um, you were talking about the way in which, you know, there have been environmental hustings around the country um, at the last election. And that's, you know, that's very different from previous elections. And it's been um, incredibly um satisfying to go you know I went to one in Shaftesbury where there was you know a really good debate between um, all of the candidates um, about progress that could be made on the environment everybody was saying that there wasn't enough progress that there could be more progress but it was really good to see all of the parties engaging you know and, and the conservatives there championing um, the the role that they have played to date and talking about the things that um, that the party was going to do in the future when I mean, we talked about the fact that that's really been a big difference over the last five years, the the the, the level of public acceptance of climate change and the um, and the championing of of climate change policy, do you think that the Conservative Environment Network and that this Conservative government in the UK will be able to play a role in in transforming Conservative? Uh, movements in other nations like the US and Australia so that in five years time um, this discussion about whether climate change exists has just simply gone away and that all of the political attention is focusing on action uh, to get to net zero. I would like to think that we can yes Um, I think you know one of the big uh, problems with climate change as an issue in some of these other countries like Australia and the US that you've talked about that you've mentioned is that it's become a, a cultural issue that if you're on the left, you're in favour of action on climate change. If you're on the right, you're sceptical that we need to ta- that we need to tackle climate change. And I suppose what the UK Conservatives can do is to say that you know we are on the same sides of the of the political divide as you, and yet we also support action on climate change. So you can start to unpick, I guess, some of that cultural identities um, which have which have been a barrier to action. I also think you can the UK Conservatives can show that it is possible to reduce your emissions and re- reduce your emissions very rapidly while also growing your economy, whilst also creating jobs, whilst also preserving a broadly capitalist economic system. Um, you know, the, the fit, a lot of, I think a lot of climate scepticism on the right is rooted in the fear that to solve climate change, you have to um, intervene incredibly uh, aggressively in the market. You have to spend lots of public money. You have to essentially move away from uh, the sort of economic model that people on, on the right would like. And I think, you know, the UK, with its record so far, to show that that's not necessary. Um, and I think I think getting that story out there and telling telling these other countries, these other parties, that they don't need to be worried about that as, a, as an issue, um, I think could be really valuable. And certainly at, at, at SEN, you know, we hope to use COP26 in Glasgow as an opportunity to start some of those conversations with, you know, our sister parties in in these other countries, um, and and hopefully hopefully build build those relationships and, and get that message out there. Sam Hall, director of the Conservative Environment Network, thank you very much for your time. It's been it's been a very interesting conversation. Thank you for having me on, Finlay. That was Sam Hall from the Conservative Environment Network. If you've enjoyed listening, please come back and listen to more. Tell your friends, like us, review us and share our links. Farmgate is a partnership project for Farmwell and FAI Farms. 
and you can join the conversation on Twitter by searching for Farmgate Podcast. I've been Finlow Castain. Bye for now.